Which of these topics has not been covered on PremierChristianity.com? UFOs, near-death experiences, Doctor Who, Christ's return, the faith of celebrities, and Andrew Tate. Trick question. We don't shy away from any topic. We cover faith as it affects us in daily life and give you the bigger picture. PremierChristianity.com Special podcast subscription offer at PremierChristianity.com slash podcast. Hello, friends. I just want to briefly tell you about our Soul 61 course, our internship gap year. Uh, If you want to apply for it, you will come and uh, live in Watford, be part of our church. There'll be some teaching that you'll get. You'll get involved in the ministry of the church. Uh, There'll be teaching sessions on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but lots to get involved in. And opportunities to travel with me and with others a bit uh, to other parts of the country and to minister and even other parts of the world. And the point is that we grow more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ so that we can shape the world into his image and his likeness. If you feel called to leadership and you want to make a difference, why not consider coming and joining us? Soul 61, based in Watford. Check out the website. As you've just heard from Mike, Soul 61 was a 10-month leadership course, a kind of Christian gap year, which operated under different names and for various lengths of time, from 1994 to 2023. For almost three decades, hundreds of 18 to 24-year-olds paid thousands of pounds to come through the doors of the warehouses on Grey Cane Road to study scripture and grow in their faith. Some stayed on as interns at Mike's invitation. Others became volunteers or staff members at Soul Survivor. Many went on to ministry in other parts of the church but some lost their faith completely. According to reports in the press, this course was the locus of Mike's abusive behaviour. So I knew that if we were going to understand what really happened at Soul Survivor, and why, we'd need to find former students willing to speak to us. So, I began by searching for anyone with ties to Soul 61. Eventually, I tracked down a handful of alumni, some of whom told me they'd witnessed Mike wrestling with their peers, At least one former student had been considered a favourite, receiving a lot of Mike's attention, before being dropped abruptly. But many thought Mike's actions were harmless. He was eccentric, sure, a larger-than-life personality, but he was ultimately well-meaning. Some said they thought the physical wrestling was a bit strange, but others simply wouldn't speak to me. So sure were they of Mike's good character and what they saw as the media's misinterpretation of his actions. One person, who I knew had been a young intern of Mike's, said the pastor had been nothing but kind, generous and appropriate during their time together. So where did the truth lie? It was difficult to know. I had no conclusive evidence, nor anyone willing to go on the record with their stories. And as far as Soul Survivor's initial statement was concerned... Mike was not under criminal investigation. He'd not been suspended, and the church's then-acting chair of trustees, David Mitchell, said nothing should be inferred from Mike stepping back from ministry. This was perfectly normal at the start of an investigation. But in weighing up whether to redouble our efforts, there was one thing I kept coming back to. Many of those who'd spent time with Mike, either on the course or through the ministry, told me they weren't completely surprised 
when the Church of England opened a safeguarding investigation. This intrigued me, and I'll tell you why. It struck me as being in stark contrast to the response from the vast majority of people who knew Mike only from a distance, by his reputation or platform. The initial reaction from those people, myself included, had been one of total shock. Surely not Mike Plavacci. So what was the reason for this disparity? Why the lack of surprise from those who'd been closer to him? It was just enough to suggest there could be more to this story. And so we kept going. Here in the belly of the beast, we've been making dirty deals, we've been living underneath the bright lights of Babylon. I'm Megan Cornwell, and you're listening to Soul Survivors by Premier Christianity magazine. Over the course of this series, we will explore what happened at Soul Survivor Watford, highlighting the lessons for the wider church, as we share the stories of those who dared to step out and say, no more, in the name of Jesus. We need to step back and reset and say sorry and properly repent. And it's got to be, we were and are part of the problem. We've got to get our house in order, and we've got to do it soon. Otherwise, this is all going to crumble. Some of these stories won't be easy to listen to, but understanding where our church is going wrong might just help us get one step closer to the kingdom of God. Episode 2, Soul 61. Jonathan Katie, who you might remember from the previous episode were some of the first to come forward with their experiences of Soul Survivor. Jonathan was the 15-year-old who'd been at the very earliest festivals in the mid-90s, and Katie was the 12-year-old who from 2006 started going every summer to Soul Survivor. Both of them were passionate about their Christian faith and had a growing desire to serve the church. Let's pick up with them where we left off. You know, this whole thing of, you know, Mike is the way to to find your place in the kingdom of God in this movement. That's a really powerful draw. And I was drawn to Mike and to Soul Survivor because it was it felt like it was a very special thing. And, you know, you want to find a, a way to minister. You want to find out where you where you fit in all of this. Well, you know, conversations with Mike about that, that's important. You know, he, he he can make things happen, it seems. And so you want to be around the person that's making it happen. The only way I knew how to express my faith at its fullest was the worship times at Soul Survivor and everything. Uh, you know, I could have experiences at my local church, but it was never quite the same. And my local church didn't have ministry times and stuff. And those ministry times are really significant. When I was at the Soul Survivor Church, that's part of the reason I loved it is because you would often have ministry times after the service. So it allowed me to be charismatic in a way that I couldn't be at home. At every opportunity, I I tried to be at Soul Survivor Watford. I went to the celebrations. Uh, I wanted to be around New Wine. I went to St Andrew's Chorley Wood. I wanted to do something. And at that stage, uh, one of the ways to be involved in what I felt like was a significant waste was to be part of the ministry team. I was a very academic person. I got very, very good grades at school and had the opportunity to apply to top universities. But I 
really wanted to give it all up to follow this undefined ministry career. I was going to go on this exciting adventure. And that started with Soul 61, probably because of what you'd learn on that year, but also the connections that you'd make. It's like anything in the secular world, you would have a network then. So yeah, I thought that was going to be the beginning of everything. Katie says she raised £10,000 to join Soul 61. Enough to cover rent and living costs for the 10-month residential stay in Watford. Plus she wanted to go on the overseas trip with Mike to New Zealand. So she needed extra for flights and food. Jonathan failed to make it on the earliest cohort of students. So instead he joined the church and enrolled on the ministry team for the festivals. The two teenagers were in Watford 17 years apart. Jonathan from 94 and Katie in 2011. But it's striking how similar their immediate impressions of Mike were. When you go on to Soul 61, you start to work in close proximity with these people. You start to see what they're really like. I had a bit of anxiety about whether that would be disappointing. And Mike is not the same as he is on stage at all. He's a very, very different person. I saw the, the people that got close to Mike and the way they felt. But then I also saw the people that didn't get close to Michael were overlooked and how they were felt. And so there's this intense kind of like the ins and the outs. And I was sort of part of the out crowd. And again, no bitterness. I, I feel very thankful for that. It taught me a lot of lessons. And then you saw the inner circle. And then you saw the way the inner circle behaved and the sort of smugness and the privilege and the access that they had to things that you didn't have access to. Mike interacted very differently with the men than the women. You know, he would really be able to be very engaging, gregarious, and kind of like he was on stage with the guys on the course, and not all of the guys, but some of the guys. Whereas when it came to women, it was we were very much held at arm's length. There was not very much connection there. It felt very awkward trying to talk to him. And you just kind of waited to be chosen by him. In addition to this culture of exclusivity that seemed all-pervasive at the church. Jonathan says he also witnessed an unhealthy leadership from Mike during his time on the ministry team. It was like banned, you know, it was like come, and then he would sort of ridicule or poke fun at. And sometimes that happened and sometimes it didn't. It was almost like a bipolar kind of thing, you know, and it always made me sort of wonder what the hell's going on here. And sometimes I'd catch him looking at me. Sometimes I catch him just making sure that what I was doing fitted into the protocol, as it were. And sometimes I'd see him just give me a hard stare of kind of going, is this guy doing it right? And so there was a pressure. There was a pressure to perform, I think, in that room, in those spaces. But yeah, there was definitely the eyes of Mike upon the proceedings. And I was acutely aware of that. During that time, let me just say one thing I saw, I shouldn't have seen it. But I sort of found myself walking somewhere and, and seeing Mike on the phone and hearing him really bellowing at someone. So for a 15-year-old emotionally immature kid, to see Mike not on stage and interacting with someone in quite a harsh way, and it made me feel uncomfortable. And he wouldn't have wanted me to see that. I think he was surprised when he saw me. But I, I couldn't reconcile what I saw on stage, this prophetic, holy, fun guy with you know, sort it out or otherwise, you know, blah, 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 kind of that harsh tone. While it's always disheartening to find that someone you admire and respect isn't quite who you thought they were, nothing in Jonathan or Katie's accounts struck me as conclusive about Mike's character or conduct. Sure, Mike had turned out to be different from the humble and funny person they had seen on stage. 
but plenty of Christian leaders have lost their temper during a phone call or been too controlling in a ministry setting. And wasn't Mike's relationship with a worship band based on banter, a joke they were all in on? Is it possible that other people were putting Mike on a pedestal, rather than this being something Mike desired for himself? You might remember Becky from episode one. She was 18 when she started going to Soul Survivor Festival. She had a life-changing experience of the Holy Spirit in the summer of 94. And it was while camping at the Bath and West showground that she first heard about the course Mike was running in Watford. In those early days, Soul 61 was called Bodybuilders and it ran for six months at a time. Becky loved the idea of learning more about God and honing her gifts so she applied immediately and set about raising the funds for half a year away from home. It was an exciting time. I mean, God was moving in a way that nobody had seen for years. You know, people were really encountering, physically encountering God, and and worship was really changing then. You know, most churches at that time were still singing hymns, having hymn books handed out, and you have all your hymn numbers, you find the hymns, and... You know, that kind of thing. And suddenly, worship was becoming much more important. And because of my love of singing and worship, that was what really drew me to it. I also just needed some time. I'd finished my A-levels. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And this seemed perfect. I'd just recommitted my life to Jesus. And I didn't want to, um, for that to fade. And so I wanted to really invest in that. In the spring of 95, full of faith and anticipation... Becky made her way to Watford to join 18 others on the bodybuilders course. A typical day would include Bible teaching and social action projects, as well as stints at Dregs Cafe, a youth outreach run by the church. The afternoons were mainly spent in workshops to grow their spiritual gifts and callings. Becky, who felt her vocation was as a worship leader, was in the music stream with Matt Redman. Before Redmond became a household name in Christian circles, he'd been in Mike's youth group at St Andrew's Chorley Wood. I'll tell you more about that in a later episode. But for now, let's stick with Becky and her memories of the 10 years she spent at Soul Survivor. After completing Bodybuilders, Becky remained at the church until 2005. And over that decade, she developed a solid understanding of how Mike operated. Here she is, talking about him in those early days. I remember him always being around and he would take certain people sometimes on trips that he was doing. At that point, he wasn't travelling a lot overseas. It was more around the country. And yeah, he'd pick certain people to go with him and, and Matt to do certain things. I guess he was trying to get the church up and running a lot more. So he was, yeah, he was focused on that. But he would hang out with us. I look back now And especially with all the allegations that have come out, I'm like, how did I miss that? How did I never question the fact that this adult man was hanging out with all these young people all the time? But it's because when you're in it, I kind of think of it as like, you know, that analogy of boiling a frog. If you put a frog in boiling water, it's going to jump straight out. Whereas if you put it in cold water and then just turn the heat up, turn the heat up, it will stay in. And it was a bit like that. I went in completely naive, like all of us did. We were all so young. I was 18. I was a teenager. I didn't know anything about life. I didn't even understand my own emotions or mental health, let alone looking at how the world works. And so you trust this person 
who, you know, is promising all these amazing things and seems to have this direct line to God. And so you just stay in it and you stay in it. And on the one hand, I still believe are really genuine encounters. And God was really teaching me loads of stuff. I was starting to see who I was in light of who God was. And I was precious and God loved me. And then at the same time, there was this toxic culture of power abuse and control. And I was being harshly judged. So at the same time, God was building me up and Mike was tearing me down. And it was just this mess of stuff that has been so hard to decipher and to understand and unpack. The mess of stuff that Becky describes here is the complicated mix of the good, the bad and the ugly that she says she encountered during her time at Soul Survivor Watford. It's the confusion that accompanies her memories of that decade because there was so much good that God was doing, accompanied by a darker underbelly. To help us unravel and understand Becky's story, we're going to start at the beginning of her time at the church with a prophetic word from the late Reverend Barry Kissel. Dear Barry Kissel, he's a wonderful, wonderful person and him and Mary had an incredible impact on my life back then. He was a real advocate for me and he saw I had a gift. He had some prophetic words to me actually on the first time I ever met him. He didn't know I was a singer and had a prophetic word about me singing and how God was going to use me in worship, which is another reason why worship was such a big thing for me. From 1971, Kissel served alongside the late David Pitches at St Andrew's Chorley Wood and was one of the pioneers of the charismatic movement in the UK. He co-founded New Wine and had a reputation for hearing from God. He was around a lot at the start of Soul Survivor and when Becky met the Kissels, Barry's words carried great weight. He confirmed what she'd already begun to sense, that she was stepping into the promises of God by serving at this exciting and dynamic new church. But she soon found there were some barriers to fulfilling her calling. Outwardly, you would think it was very affirming of women because we did have a couple of women in leadership. It actually wasn't like that. With the time I was there, anyway, I can only speak for that decade up to 2005, but it certainly wasn't like that. It was women were emotional we were a weird species kind of thing and so I I got into my head I've got to train myself not to be over emotional I've got to walk this you know all women will resonate with this it's like if you want to be a leader or you want to do anything you can't be too quiet and you know a wallflower but you can't be too loud either otherwise you're overbearing and you're too dominating and that's ugly and that's not right you've got to walk this fine line of being strong but not too strong so that you know the male leaders aren't intimidated and threatened and it's this constant thing and so I spent 10 years just trying to train myself to be smaller and to to be less Becky-like. Becky had joined Soul Survivor a year after the first female priests were ordained in the Church of England. So there was still a way to go before women leaders and preachers were accepted as commonplace. As for worship, it was hard enough getting in the band in the first place, but Becky thought backing vocals was probably the most she could aspire to. Quite apart from being female, though, there were other hurdles to overcome. I picked up straight away, Mike controlled the worship. 
that was his thing. That was something he was extremely protective about. And you only got to be on the team if you were seen to be humble. And you had to have that quality, otherwise you didn't get to go on stage. If you showed you wanted it too much, that to Mike was self-seeking and a red flag. And it was like, you're never gonna get there. And looking back, the thing that was troubling was that humility was more defined by personality traits. So it was like, if you were a shy, quiet person, if you shunned the limelight, then you would be seen as humble. And unfortunately, I'm outgoing, fun-loving, I'm, I'm loud, and I'm just passionate and I'm expressive. And at such a young age, I didn't feel like I had to guard the fact that I wanted to sing. I didn't see that that was a bad thing, but it counted against me, definitely, at that time. Because Mike had so much control, his opinion of you mattered. And I was 18, so first of all, I believed him because he had so much power. He was so wise. He was knowledgeable. He had a hotline to God. You know, he was prophetic. And because humility was defined by personality, I felt like there was something at the core of me that was wrong and I had to change that. So for very early on, whilst I was having these amazing times with my peers and there was an amazing community there, I was already, from the first couple of days of bodybuilders, I was started to get into that cycle of, I'm not good enough. What do I have to do to get an opportunity to get Mike to approve of me? The nature of this desire to impress Mike was something Becky would come to reflect on decades later. I struggled for years not to blame myself for putting him on a pedestal because it was like, well, surely I've, I know I, his opinion matters more to me than it should because God's opinion should matter, not Mike's. And I used to berate myself for it, just be like it's a moral failing. I can't get him off this pedestal. Why do I care so much about what Mike thinks of me? But, and it's only in the last year or so that I've recognised that actually it's with the nature of power. When somebody has that much power over someone else and they place themselves as judge and jury over your life and they're the gatekeeper to your hopes and dreams, it's them that have put themselves on that pedestal, not you. And that was the final thing for me, where I felt real freedom from it, that none of this was my fault. Not even that, because he made himself the God figure in my life and in the young people's lives at Soul Survivor. And that was the culture that he created. In practical terms, this culture was one where Mike controlled the opportunities to serve within the ministry. One particular key Mike held was the opportunity to travel. And travelling was one of Becky's passions. I love travel. I love people. And so for me, the travelling, I loved it so much. And so I would hope, I would always hope that I'd get asked to do things. And yeah, you just wait, really. You just wait. You just wait. <laughs> and you just think and hope and pray. Because of Mike's burgeoning reputation at home and abroad, as someone God was using mightily, he would often receive invitations to speak at churches, at first in the UK and then all over the world. He would usually take a coterie of trusted individuals with him. In those early days, that would be people like Matt Redman. And then a bit later, Tim and Pete Hughes. Then in the early 2000s, Mike started hiring interns, often young men who'd been through the discipleship course 
or who Mike had met at various church events. People like Andy Croft, who was 18 when he became an intern. He would go on to become Soul Survivor's senior pastor in 2016. From Hawaii to South Africa, Andy and others would join Mike on these exciting overseas trips. They were a unique opportunity for young people starting out in Christian ministry. Because of the so-called Billy Graham rule, popular with some evangelical Christians, Becky says few women were included in those trips in the early days. If you're not familiar with this rule, it's part of the code of conduct that evangelist Billy Graham lived by. According to the manifesto, male Christian leaders should avoid spending one-on-one time with a woman who isn't their wife or a relative. It was seen as a safeguard from sexual temptation. But the rule has been heavily criticised in recent times for implying that women are temptresses or that men cannot control themselves. But thanks to an intervention from Barry Kissel in the spring of 97, Becky found herself on her way to a Christian conference in the Netherlands with Matt Redman and Mike Plavacci. I was singing with Matt, but I was also asked by the resident worship team to come and they put me at the front of the stage and told me just to sing what was on my heart. And I'd never been in that situation and I knew this is so not Soul Survivor. But I was in this awkward position of like, I've just been put, they've just said to me, come and sing. And I did and I could sense Mike at the back just judging. I knew that I'd not, he wasn't pleased with what was happening. And I knew that I'm too visible here and I've overstepped the mark. And yeah, there was lots of situations like that. Thanks to the relationships Mike was building in the Netherlands, Soul Survivor Holland would soon be founded there. But the following year, Becky was not found among those asked to return. So this was one of the first times that I was just dropped. I think those that have spoken out have mentioned this, that he would give opportunities to people and then for seemingly no reason, you're suddenly cut. You don't get asked again and you never get told why. You're expected just to suck that up. It was just like, you know, this is it. It's not about you. It's about God. So, you know, if you do want an explanation, then I think you should question your motives for that. It was that kind of message that was given all the time. One of the huge issues at Soul Survival was a lack of communication. There was just never any communication. There was no valuing of the person's feelings. He could communicate to 10,000 people in a big top at the festival and make every single person feel like he's talking just to them. But as soon as you take him off of the stage, that was non-existent. He didn't know how to have good communication in a friendship, and particularly with women. By 2002, Becky had been at Soul Survivor for seven years as a faithful and committed member of the congregation. She'd served on the worship team, been present at all the prayer meetings and had given up hours and hours of her time to volunteer in various roles. She had experienced God in profound and precious ways and yet she was confounded by one thing. She just wasn't flourishing and she couldn't quite put her finger on why. And it wasn't till the end that I realised that actually this opinion that Mike had had of me as this immature, untrustworthy person he was the only one that held that view. Everyone else within the church that really knew me respected me. They thought I was 
trustworthy. And it was probably in my mid-twenties, I was like, hold on, if all these people that really know me think this, why do you not think this? And that's when I started to kind of think, hold on, I think there's something wrong with you here. But at the same time, I still had these desires to be part of worship and for doors to open for me. And so it was like, you're still the kingmaker, you're still the gatekeeper, so I have to keep you. It was this Oh, it was a mess of all these really conflicting emotions. It was horrible to be here, to be honest. That same year, Mike approached her with an opportunity, and it felt like a real answer to prayer. I'd wanted to lead worship for years, but obviously never asking to do it. And he caught me after a pre-service prayer meeting. Just said, Becky, can I, can I chat with you? And I said, yeah, OK feeling a bit weird about it because it's like we don't do this what are you going to ask me and he started the conversation and just said the thing is he said I felt God telling me for a while that you need to lead worship which is like brilliant you know fantastic yay God is you know finally gonna give me an opportunity but then he paused and then he pointed at me and just said but Becky if I let you do this you must apply yourself like that. And it was just like suddenly this weight of pressure just fell on me. And it was all of that opinion that he had of me of like, you're not trustworthy, you're too immature for this. But it also on reflection, looking back, I didn't recognise it at the time, but to say, if I let you do this, it's like God, the supreme God has said to you, you're sure God has told you I should be leading worship and you're questioning God and you're not even sure if you're going to obey. It was like, what a grandiose view of yourself you have. It's shocking to think about it now. But needless to say, I didn't flourish because, like I said, I didn't know how to be myself, but also please this kind of ambiguous vision of what he expected me to be and so I couldn't be myself I wasn't free to do it and the hardest thing was I got up there tried to lead worship and I I wobbled and I didn't get any feedback from him after all of that pressure he put on me there was silence nothing I didn't get a well done what about trying this or that there was nothing he would just walk out at the end of the service and I'd be like well if I get asked again I know I've done well sometime after that church service Becky decided to speak to Mike about how she was feeling. She simply couldn't carry on with things the way they were. She booked a slot in his diary and waited. As the date drew closer, she started to feel more and more anxious. We met at the warehouse. I was shaking. I was trying to hide that I was shaking because I don't like confrontation anyway, but he was such a force. He had so much power and I knew he could just shut my dreams down, just like that. And so it was a ballsy move on my part to do that. But I, I did, and I knew that I wouldn't be happy if I hadn't had a conversation with him. So I said to him, I feel like you've treated me really unfairly. I feel like you've got this opinion of me that is actually not grounded in any truth or any actual reality. I said, and the way you asked me to lead worship was really unfair. You put all this pressure on me and you've not communicated with me. And I I really kind of just put it out there. And at first he was just so generous. And this is always Mike. He's so, I don't know, he's just, he could come across so warm. And he was like, oh, mate, I'm so sorry. I'm gutted. I'm gutted you feel like that. 
I see you as one of my good friends, my closest friends. And I just thought to myself at that point, that's a bit weird. <laughs> because you've never asked me how I'm doing. You've never asked me what my job is that I do. You know, friendship to me was very different. And so I felt hopeful. And I felt hopeful that, okay, going forward now, it could be different. I can be free. I can be myself. And we can have this more honest relationship. And so we left the warehouse and I was never asked to lead worship again. And he didn't speak to me again till 2005. I got ghosted. I got well and truly ghosted. He would see me after church. I would go to smile and say hi and he would just turn away and he'd look through me. And I'd been silenced because I had challenged him and this was what happened. He shut me down and he excluded me. And it was like there was nothing I could do. And it's like, if I can't go to him and tell him and sort this whole thing out, there's no one else who's got any more power over him <laughs> to be able to change it. I was utterly powerless and it's a horrible feeling. For Becky, that encounter with Mike and the six months of silent treatment that followed was the beginning of the end of her time at Soul Survivor. The years she devoted to the church had really started to take a toll on her mental health and she was beginning to feel dangerously unwell. With the counsel of friends, Becky slowly came to the realisation that she had to move away, so she got ready to join a church plant nearby. But in the run-up to its launch, she felt increasingly that she wanted to leave on good terms. And that meant speaking to Mike again. I'd given so much of my life to Soul Survivor, like eight years of my life at that point. You know, I'd spent my 21st birthday at a prayer meeting for Soul Survivor. I spent all my significant milestones serving at Soul Survivor. And I still, despite what had happened, I wanted to leave well. So at the 2003 festivals, I'd made the decision and I thought, I, I want to tell Mike that I'm leaving and I just want to, want to go. So I was sitting, I was in the team area and I was on my own in there and Mike happened to wander in and he had this black cloud over him. I could sense every fibre in his being was like, I don't want to talk, I don't want to talk. But I knew it was going to be my only opportunity because I couldn't access him. So I just said, look, Mike, I know you want to rest. And he laid there with his head back. I said, I know you want to rest and you don't want to talk. I said, but I just want to say this really quickly. I said, I've decided to leave Soul Survivor and I'm going to join the church plant. And his head was back, eyes closed. He didn't even move. He didn't open his eyes and he just went, OK. And that was it. And I just went, oh, OK. And I walked out. And that was how it all officially ended for me. I expected him at least to make eye contact and just be like, oh, well, thanks for everything you've done or that would be sad, nothing. It was, OK, now leave me. You know, it was that. And I don't know if he was going through a particularly rough time. I don't know. But that, that was very wounding to me. And yeah, it's taken a long time to process all of that. That's been one of the most painful things over the last four months, actually, is reliving that utter sense of powerlessness and that you don't have a voice. You know, I would sit in my bedroom and I would either spend hours awake at night ruminating over what happened or I would have these sometimes out loud, audible, imaginary conversations with Mike and I would say the things that I wanted to say to him that I couldn't. Those kind of imaginary conversations happened for years after as I was processing it all. And it's like there was no other outlet for me to do that. Healing and wholeness did eventually find Becky, but it took years. 
Years of untangling what was God from what was Mike, what was healthy from what was toxic, and what was truth from what was a lie. I wobbled in my faith, I'm not going to lie, but the way God came close to me and has validated me, has just held me these last 20 years, my soul is safe with him. I learned from him that he thinks I'm trustworthy. He thinks I'm mature (laughs) and he's proud of me. And I mess up and I've still got a long way to go, but Jesus will never judge me like that and never abuse his power over me. And that's a huge lesson I've learned. Since I've started to speak out, a lot of people have been so encouraging and supportive. I've had a couple of old friends challenging me and just saying, this is an attack on the church and it's the enemy, you know, and I see it the opposite. I think this is God. I do. I'm not an expert on the mind of God. I've got it wrong many times. So this is just what I sense, but I sense this is God. Those of us who've been hurt by church have been silenced for so many years. We've had to nurse our wounded souls privately alone. And now it's time to end the silence. And that's why I'm speaking out. It's painful. It's costly. I'm probably putting a lot of valuable relationships on the line by doing this. I know that. But I'm tired of silence. I'm tired. Mike used silence as a weapon to control and the silence is deafening from some quite major leaders out there too and it's painful for those of us who are working through that and the times where people have spoken out have been so healing to those of us who are survivors and I think we need to start not only calling out the abuse of people like Mike Pilavachi, but we need to start calling out the abuse in the church, in church culture, widely. When I first heard Becky's story, I found it quite hard to listen to, if I'm honest. But as a journalist, I still had questions. In any church context, there will be people who feel that a leader has hurt or rejected them, that they've been silenced or sidelined. As horrible as it was for Becky, I had to remember that we only had one side of the story. It's worth stating at this point that we did reach out to Mike, but are yet to receive a response to our invitation to take part in this podcast. I knew that if I was to understand whether or not this was an isolated incident, I would need to find others who could corroborate her account. That's when Jonas got in touch. Hi, Megan. I've heard that you are planning a podcast on Mike Pilavachi and Soul Survivor and looking for people to speak to. I was at Soul Survivor Watford in the late 90s and the early 2000s and was subjected to the same kind of behaviour that others had described. I replied immediately to Jonas and set up a Zoom call. Hello, Jonas. Hello. That blew my background. I don't know. There we go. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Yeah. How are you? You may remember that Jonas was the Swede who came to the UK in 1998 to attend Soul Survivors Summer Festival for the first time. Like Becky, he had just finished his A levels and he felt God calling him to something new. It just seemed authentic and real and genuine. It was amazing to be part of this worship and 
I felt moved in ways that probably hadn't been before. And a lot of my teenage years were characterized by like a deep longing and deep search for God and for experiencing God as well. And I think that's part of the kind of more charismatic one. During the festival, it was announced from the stage that there were still some spaces on the course that were starting in Watford. By 98, Bodybuilders had been rebranded Soul Time and was running twice a year for five months each time. Jonas had been praying about his next steps and he liked the idea of living together with other young Christians passionate about their faith. So he sent off an application as soon as he returned home. Jonas joined Soul Time in October that same year and he says that very quickly Mike singled him out from his peers and made him feel special like he was one of Mike's friends. It was clear that Mike singled me out in that group. There were others as well. I'm not solely singled out, but I felt singled out. Maybe I should say it that way. And Mike is, you know, he's funny. He is bodily figure. It would be things like, which he does all the time, is that he singles people out in a church service, make a joke about them. So it's things like that. It's maybe spending a bit extra time talking to me between after or before sessions. He did some of the teaching and we bump into each other once in a while. I think it was several times that I was invited to his flat in Chorleywood. So he would come and pick me up and we'd go to his house. During the course, we all lived in the same, it was three houses that were kind of locked together in one. So he picked me up from there. There was someone else as well so I don't think I was on my own in his house but my main memory from there is the wrestling I can't remember very much else and even the wrestling I'm not it's it I don't know I I have only had vague memories of it I can remember it I can visualize his lounge and being on the floor I can visualize the sofa and I can visualise how how he was exhausted afterwards. But I didn't think of it as inappropriate at the time. I didn't feel violated. I felt like it was just being seen. It was just a bit of fun. And whether that was just because that's what it was, or whether it was Mike and the power dynamics involved, I I, I just don't have a strong opinion about. But that's just my experience. And so even now, when I look back at that, I don't particularly feel grieved by that. I think that I just want to point that out, that some people did, but I don't, I don't have it. I, I think now it's inappropriate, but that was never where my hurt was. Jonas is going to explain exactly what he found hurtful about Mike's behaviour. But I want to stop here for a moment to reflect on what you've just heard. Because it's a bit confusing, isn't it? In 1998, Mike was a 40-year-old church leader, pioneering a growing ministry for young people, and Jonas was a 20-year-old gap year student. Wrestling at Mike's house might not have seemed inappropriate to Jonas at the time, but it certainly struck me as odd, hearing his story 25 years later. I wanted to probe a little further, and so I asked Jonas to elaborate on this aspect of his testimony. After a long pause for a reflection, this is what he said. And and that's part of what I've been thinking about now. Why did it take me so long to realise that that was wrong? And that was inappropriate, at least, right? You know, if it was anyone else, if it was anyone else, we'd be like, 
hang on a minute. That's just not, that's just not, that doesn't sit right. I mean, if you were to say to me that there's a youth leader in my church who's taking around people to his house and is wrestling with them, I would kind of think that would be wrong. So what was it about Mike that made him an exception? We'll explore this dynamic in more detail later in the podcast. But for now, let's find out what Jonas did find harmful during his time at the church. I think it was towards the end of that gap year or the subship training course. Hume and had a chat with me uh, about forming a team to go to Melbourne to set up Soul Survivor in, in Australia. And, you know, obviously you think, wow, what an adventure, you know, what an opportunity. And so, yeah, so really Mike made you feel special. I think that's it. And, you know, he, in your eyes, he is someone who's walking close to God, right? And you want to be part of that. So I was kind of waiting for Mike to call again and, you know, to sort that out. Now that didn't really happen. When Mike did eventually call, it was about something different. He wanted Jonas to help lead soul time back in Watford. It wasn't quite blistering sunshine and barbecues on a beach down under, but it was a good leadership opportunity nonetheless. So Jonas accepted the short-term contract with Soul Survivor, and when it came to an end, he had six months before starting a degree at London School of Theology. Again, Mike asked him to stay on, only this time, as one of his interns. Jonas would receive a stipend to cover rent, and he'd get to shadow Mike at ministry events over the summer. But before Jonas could accept, he was warned off by another church member who said the pastor had a history of over-promising and under-delivering. Instead, Jonas decided to volunteer at an orphanage in South Africa. He thought Mike seemed fine with this decision. But listen to what happened next. From that point on, Mike never spoke to me again. So I remained in the church for another three years and he never acknowledged me over those three years. Not even a high. By British standards, Soul Survivor has always been a fairly large church, gathering up to 500 people for some services. But it's never been a mega church, and past members say on average that there's about 300 people in the room. So for Jonas to not have had a single interaction with his pastor in three years of regular attendance does seem odd. What's more, listening to Jonas share his experience of interacting with Mike, I was struck by the parallels with Becky's story. The way Mike seemed to use ministry opportunities as a carrot or stick. His poor communication and lack of feedback. And then the silent treatment if you challenged him or things didn't go his way. Knowing the impact this behaviour had had on Becky, I was keen to find out how Jonas felt at the time. It takes time for you to understand, you know, actually you have been (laughs) rejected or shunned or ghosted, but it eventually makes you start questioning what went on, why that happened. And yeah, I guess, I guess it starts, it makes you start questioning, you know, what you did wrong. Uh, you know, you go over the final conversations, you know, was there something there that I said that I, was I maybe a bit too confrontational? You know, that kind of thing. I think the question I'm left with is, what if Mike had actually discipled all these young men? And I'm just thinking about the fruit of that. Uh, and that's kind of where I'm left. I'm like, well, why did it have to be like that? 
If he'd disciple all these young men, well, and it seems to be hundreds, imagine what that could have done for the church. Becky and Jonas's stories of serving alongside Mike chimed with several others I had spoken to who didn't want to be named on this podcast. It seemed that Mike's behaviour was part of a wider pattern. What I wanted to understand, though, was whether it could be categorised as spiritual abuse. So I called Dr Lisa Oakley, a safeguarding expert at the University of Chester, I think it's important to say at the start that this definition is likely to continue to be developed as we grow in our understanding. But at the moment, we're talking about this as a form of emotional or psychological abuse characterised by a systematic pattern of coercive, controlling behaviour in a religious context or with a religious rationale. Emotional and psychological abuse were not terms Becky and Jonas had used to describe what happened to them. But they did mention things like ghosting, a concept that refers to a friend or partner who suddenly cuts off all communication without explaining why. And during our interview, Katie had talked about gaslighting, a form of manipulation where someone is routinely convinced to believe a false narrative that benefits their abuser. I asked Dr Oakley about this kind of behaviour. So when we talk about gaslighting, when we talk about ghosting, those are some of those unhealthy behaviours that we might see in a context. And actually, if we start to see a pattern of those behaviours emerging over a period of time, then it might cross that threshold. The threshold she's referring to is where unhealthy behaviour becomes spiritually abusive. And her team at Chester has devised a helpful graph to represent this spectrum. At one end lies healthy culture that should be encouraged and applauded. It moves into unhelpful behaviour and then unhealthy culture and finally spiritual abuse. So ghosting and gaslighting tip over into abuse, it seems, when they're done frequently, either to one individual or to many over a longer period of time. What I think we need to do and become much better at is recognising where behaviour is unhelpful, where it is unhealthy, and particularly where it is escalating or perpetuating, because I think there is somewhere that we need to be addressing behaviour much earlier on. We don't want it to escalate. We don't want that harm to become greater and to perpetuate. And we need to start, the more that we talk about healthy and unhelpful behaviours, the more that we talk about unhealthy behaviours, the more that we can start to, within our Christian communities, we can start to reflect upon the behaviours that we're seeing. We can start to understand what behaviours are helpful and unhelpful, and we can start to address things earlier on in order that it doesn't escalate. It seemed to me that Becky had tried to speak to Mike about his behaviour, but it hadn't resulted in positive change. In fact, he ignored her after she challenged him. Whether Mike Pilavachi was spiritually abusive is something you'll have to decide for yourself. But what's clear is this his behaviour had a profound and lasting impact. Katie told me she lost her faith during that year on Soul 61, and she's only just making her way back to Jesus now, 12 years later. Jonathan was at Watford 30 years ago, and yet during our interview, there were moments when he found it really hard to relive some of his experiences. As for Jonas, he's now Dr Kerlberg, a lecturer in theology at Spurgeon's College but he lives with a scepticism of evangelical leaders that he can't seem to shake off and a reluctance to get fully involved at his church. And Becky, well, 
she says it's a miracle she's still a Christian. Next time on Soul Survivors. The stuff about him massaging people being an open secret, absolutely. He talked about giving massages to people on a soul time course. Mike would talk at the time about learning to massage it being one of his hobbies, which he was practicing with his friends. So I just thought it was normal. This is just something Mike's into, and so I just went with it. We're spending time together, and this is one of his hobbies, so I did it for that reason. For me, it was a sign of being accepted that that Mike was wrestling with that person. And and there was a weird sense of like, oh, it's not close enough to me to wrestle with me sort of thing. Mike Pilevacci was invited to take part in this series. He has yet to respond, but the door is still open. If you found some of these stories difficult to listen to, you're not alone. Coming up after the credits, a reflection from abuse survivor Caroline Plant and her husband, Simon. Soul Survivors was brought to you by Premier Christianity magazine. The reporting was done by Kelly Valencia and me, Megan Cornwell. We wrote and produced it together with sound design by Bradley Howard. The theme song is Toxic by Chris Llewellyn, featuring propaganda. We've invited Caroline and Simon Plant from Replenished Life to reflect on what this all means for us as Christians. At Replenished Life... We regularly hear people's experiences of harm within faith. This harm can be caused by a range of unhelpful, unhealthy or abusive behaviours. It's vital that we listen well, celebrate healthy Christian culture, identify unhelpful or unhealthy behaviours early by reflecting on how we use power and how we behave towards each other. As Christians, Jesus needs to be the central model of how we use power and how we behave towards each other. Jesus models a leadership that is rooted in peace, truth, goodness, compassion, righteousness, mercy, reconciliation, sacrifice and never-ending love. He gathers to himself all who have been scattered, caring for them, feeding them, protecting them. He leads them beside still waters. He restores their souls. He also tends to his disciples, for he knows that as they carry out the mission they share with him, they need support and time to unwind. And so he listens to their stories and finds them a quiet place where they can rest. He models what it is to be a good shepherd, a good leader, so that they can become good leaders too. Martin Luther King said, Power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice, and justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. We should regularly ask ourselves, does the way we use power when leading or being led follow the model that Jesus set? When asked what the most important commandment was, Jesus answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. 
The second most important commandment is this, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus' words in the second most important commandment gives us the lens through which all our behaviors should be checked. We also need to ask ourselves, does our behavior to others demonstrate love, value, respect and dignity? Are we loving others in the way that we love ourselves? For many who have been harmed within faith, there's a further reflection. Am I loving myself in the way that I love others? In response, self-care, self-compassion and love have to intentionally be made central to the way we behave towards ourselves. For ourselves and many others that we walk alongside at Replenished Life, this is a challenge. So as we keep walking, let's reflect on how we use power and how we behave towards others and towards ourselves, keeping love at the centre. Which of these topics has not been covered on PremierChristianity.com? UFOs, near-death experiences, Doctor Who, Christ's return, the faith of celebrities, and Andrew Tate. Trick question. We don't shy away from any topic. We cover faith as it affects us in daily life and give you the bigger picture. PremierChristianity.com. Special podcast subscription offer at PremierChristianity.com slash podcast.